supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here alongside the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. A bit of a special show tonight. Uh, we'll let you in on a little bit of inside information right off the bat. We're not really in the spooky studio. This show is pre-recorded. So actually right now I'm, I'm probably rocking out to the to the strands of the police reunion tour. So, But we still have a great show planned for you. Joining us tonight will be David Omen. Uh, if you've seen the Season finale of Ghost Hunters. David was the gentleman who owned the house that's built on the property where the Charles Manson murders took place, where um, the Manson family followers uh, killed Sharon Tate and her friends. Uh, now, for those who are unfamiliar with the case, uh, and I, I can't imagine in this day and age anybody would be, uh, I put together something here uh, from our friends at Wikipedia uh, who talk about the beginning of Charles Manson's uh, supposed race war. Uh, he was a, a, uh, a representative of the hippie culture of the 1960s in San Francisco. He had been in and out of prisons his entire life, uh, and he finally settled down in San Francisco and started to build a following amongst the hippie generation. Uh, he had a number of followers, and a majority of them being women, uh, and they did move uh, into a ranch at one point and, and start plotting what they called Helter Skelter. Uh, Charles Manson believed that the Beatles' White Album had specific messages regarding an impending race war between blacks and whites, and that if the family, the Manson family, could uh, remain a step ahead of this, then when the whites were divided by those who supported the blacks and those who didn't, uh, and they were all killed out amongst themselves, and then the blacks uh, took over, they would need the family to lead the way. That was Charles Manson's belief under this helter-skelter uh, theory that he was uh, proposing to his followers. So on June, on, sorry, on July 27th of 1969, the notorious Manson family murders were heralded when family member Bobby Boussolet stabbed to death family acquaintance Gary Hinman in a dispute over money. Before Boussolet killed him on Manson's instruction, Hinman had been held by Boussolet, Mary Bruner, and Susan Atkins at his Topanga Canyon residence for two days, during which Manson showed up with a sword to slash his ear. Before leaving the house, Boussoulet wrote, Political Piggy on the wall in Hinman's own blood. On August 6th, Boussoulet was arrested after he was caught driving Hinman's car, whose tire well held a murder weapon. And on August 8th, Manson told family members at the Spahn Ranch where they were staying, Now is the time for Helter Skelter. So on the night of August 8, 1969, Manson directed Tex Watson to take family members Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to the house where Melcher used to live. That was record producer Terry Melcher, who was an acquaintance of Manson uh, through Beach Boy Dennis Wilson. And he said to, quote, totally destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. He told the girls to do as Tex would instruct them. When the four arrived at the entrance to the Cielo Drive property, Watson, who'd been to the house on family business before, climbed a telephone pole near the gate and cut the phone line. It was now around midnight and into August 9th. Backing their car down to the bottom of the hill that led up to the place, they parked it there and walked back up. Thinking the gate might be electrified or rigged with an alarm, they climbed a brushy embankment at its right and dropped onto the grounds. Just then, headlights came their way from farther within the angled property. Telling the girls to lie in the bushes, Watson stepped out, shouted halt, 
and shot to death Stephen Parent, 18-year-old driver of the approaching car. After Watson had prepared their entry into the main house by cutting the screen of an open window through which he could slip in to let the others in through the door, he told Kasabian to wait down by the gate. He then proceeded to get himself and the other two girls into the house. I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business, Watson told to uh, Wycheck Frykowski, who was a friend of director Roman Polanski. Uh, Polanski was the one who was renting the house with his wife, Sharon Tate. Uh, Frykowski was awakened from his sleep in the living room couch as Watson whispered to Atkins. This was after he kicked him in the head. On Watson's direction, Atkins found, and with Krenwinkel's help, brought to the living room the house's three other occupants. Tate, who was then eight and a half months pregnant, her once lover, Jay Sebring, a noted hairstylist, and Frykowski's lover, Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger Coffee fortune. As Watson began to tie the necks of Tate and Sebring together with rope he'd brought and slung over a beam, Sebring's act of chivalry and protesting rough treatment of Tate won him a bullet from Watson. After Folger was taken momentarily back to her bedroom for her purse, which proved to hold only about $70, Watson stabbed the groaning Sebring seven times. Frykowski, whose hands had been bound with a towel, got free and began struggling with Atkins, who had been guarding him. As he fought his way toward and out the front door onto the porch, Watson, who joined in against him, struck him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, and shot him twice. Around this time, Kasabian, drawn up from the driveway by the victim's screams, arrived outside the door and, in a vain effort to halt the goings-on, lied to Atkins that someone was coming. Inside the house, Folger had got away from Krenwinkel and fled out to a bedroom door to a pool area. Pursued on the front lawn by Krenwinkel, who stabbed and finally tackled her, she was finished off by Watson's knife, her stab wounds totaling 28. As Frykowski struggled across the lawn, he too was dispatched with Watson's stabs, which added to the ones he'd received from Watson and Atkins earlier, brought his stab wounds to 51. Back in the house, Tate, who pleaded for her own life and that of the child she was carrying, was stabbed to death by Atkins, Watkins, Watson, or both, her wounds totaling 16. As the four family members began heading out back to the Spawn Ranch, Manson had told the girls to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy. Using the towel that had bound Frykowski's hands, Atkins wrote pig on the house's front door in Tate's blood. They rode home, changed out of their bloody clothes, which along with their weapons, they ditched in the hills. And just, uh, even though we won't be talking about the LaBianca case tonight, uh, as part of tonight's show, uh, the next night, six family members, including the four from the night before, uh, did go out. They, they decided that uh, there wasn't enough of a message sent in the first murders, uh, so they went to the home of supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary, and the same thing, uh, they, they went in there, they, they stabbed to death uh, both members of the LaBianca family. Uh, then they wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls and Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door, all, all written in the blood of their victims. Uh, so, I mean, anybody that's read Helter Skelter or followed the Manson cases is quite familiar with the grisly details of the of the murders. And I, I didn't read that account to uh, try to, you know, turn anybody's stomach or, or, or for the shock factor of it. I read that account so that people will have an idea of the gruesome tragedy that we're talking about tonight and understand the level of uh, shock and horror for the victims and, and why their spirits might still be trapped uh, in the house that David Oman and his father built. So uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back on the other side, we'll join in with David Oman uh, right here on Spooky South Coast.
Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services, including Reiki, Kuan Yin, magnified healing, and meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations knowledgeable staff has over 40 years experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Where can you go to find hot homemade knitted items? How about Knitbits at knitbits.etsy.com. A new baby in your life? Need a homemade knitted item for a shower gift? The Knitbits has you covered. Sweaters, bibs, booties, blankets, they've got it all. Want to be up on the latest trends? How about some of those funky, cozy socks everybody's wearing? Or knitted handbags and cell phone holders? If they don't have it at Nippets, or if you want it in a different color, email them. They'll take care of you. That's nippets.etsy.com. K-N-I-T-B-I-T-S dot E-T-S-Y dot com. Nippets, for all your homemade needs. You've got it stuck in your brain that I murdered somebody. What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. I have it here. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people. Then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. All right. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. And our guest tonight is David Omen. Uh, David, actually, you've seen him on the season finale of Ghost Hunters. Uh, he actually lives in a house on the property uh, where the Manson murders took place of uh, Sharon Tate and her friends back on August 8th of 1969. And uh, he is going to tell us uh, a little bit about uh, his experiences there, uh, the experiences beyond what we saw on Ghost Hunters, as well as a film he's working on, The House at the End of the Drive. And you can check out the website, houseatheendofthedrive.com. Uh, for more about that film, and, and we'll get into all of that. But, David, i got to ask you, the, the first time, when did you first realize that this was where you were going to be building this house? 
Well, my house is actually is, is about is about a couple is about two hundred feet down the drive from where Sharon's house stood. They had tore down the, the original Tate house in the early nineties. Um, Rudy Alcabella, the owner of the property, um, decided that he couldn't do any more with the property that it was so tainted. Mm-hmm. I assume that he did this because it was so tainted, and he just wanted to uh, try to eradicate the, the memory of the Tate murders. So my house is, like I said, is, is, is literally a stone's throw right down the private drive from where the murders took place. And, um, I mean, I was up here in 1979, 10 years after the murders, when we were in high school. It was, I hate to say, one of those um, things that you do in high school where, you know, everyone wants to go to a haunted house, or they want to go check out a location that has such tremendous infamy. Oh, yeah. And um, I remember then that we used to come up here in the night and drive up to the gate when the house was really still there and no one was living there and just look upon the property and at that time I still remember vividly going I can't believe I'm here I can't believe we're down we're right outside the gate where these murders took place because it was always and has always remained a fascinating historical um, incident in the I guess in the legends of Hollywood and in, in the world's memory, it's still collectively remembered as the end of the 60s and the end of the Age of Innocence, of the uh, of that Age of Aquarius. And so then you knew then when you when you went to build the house on this property, what was associated with it? Well, um, the funny thing is, is that it was, it was clearly by happenstance that we ended up buying the lot. Um, this is going back to the year 1999. My father, who's a builder, designer, architect, um, saw a, a listing in the uh, L.A. Times for a property that was for sale. And he says, Beverly Hills Post Office Box, Hillside Lot for sale, foreclosure. So we took a drive up to the property. And I had not been here, mind you, in 20 years, since 1979. And um, when we came down the driveway, I started feeling this weird sensation going, there's something very, very strangely familiar about this place, this area. I don't know what it is. And once we got to the lot, I looked down the street down the driveway to the end and I said oh my god I know where the hell I am I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a stone's throw from where the Tate house stood oh my god I couldn't believe it um, and after we started surveying the property I could just feel something that was just a little bit off normal and I mean that by walking around the hill you know, walking on the side of the hill and looking around it just I felt this weird sensation like I wasn't alone. And I don't mean like I wasn't alone with my father. I mean I wasn't alone, period. There was something else there, energetically speaking. And and when you were in the process of building the home, was there any experiences reported uh, by those on the construction crew? I I thought you alluded to something uh, on the Ghost Hunter show about something happening during the construction phase. Yeah, um, as a matter of fact, Many times when I was here alone on the property surveying, you know, the construction, because my father was the head contractor and I was basically um, working to build the house with him, I could just tell you that there's just this weird sensation when you know you're not alone. When you're walking around the, 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 um, the lo- um, on top of the, uh, I guess, the framing and stuff, and you're walking around, the empty, the flooring was up, and I was walking around, it's just like you had a sensation like there was somebody behind you, not at all times. But every now and then I'd walk around and just look out over the project and go, I know there's somebody behind me. I can just feel the presence. And I would turn around, and there was no one there. But you knew. You could feel this type of a feeling of somebody watching and looking and paying attention. 
um, six months before the, the house was actually done, when the walls were up, but, you know, we were still had some more work to do, I assembled all of my laborers, and these were all a bunch of um, gentlemen, you know, when they're between 18 and 22, mm-hmm. and they were from Central America and Mexico, and I asked them, I aligned, aligned all six of them up, and I said, hey, and I asked them in Spanish, has anybody had any weird experiences since you guys have been working on the job? You know, in a very, very nonchalant fashion. Mind you, these guys knew nothing of Tate, knew nothing of the murders from 30-some-odd years earlier, and they don't have a point of reference to refer to as far as this is concerned. However, they're all Catholic, and they all have a very, very deep spiritual sense about themselves. So one of the guys said, yeah, and I forgot, I think this guy's name was Hector, and he was from El Salvador. And he said, yeah, he stood up and goes, he raised his hand and goes, see, sí, you're telling me on, on shampoo, muy, muy, muy peligroso, which in, 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 it translated means, yeah, I had a very, very frightening, scary experience in the house one time. And he related to me that he was here six months earlier in the middle of the summer, and I guess it was July, and he was working late until about 6.30 at night, this is when it's happening. And he says he's the only one here, and he's down on the third level working. And he says he heard voices and footsteps coming from the top floor, which is the street level. And he says he came upstairs, and he thought it was my father and me coming back to the job site to take a look at the place and to check up on what was going on. He describes that he runs upstairs, looks around, and he says there's nobody on the top floor. He says he walked out into the driveway and looked up and down the driveway, and there were no cars, and there was no one around. So he said, he says, okay, he's hearing things, whatever. He goes back down to the third level, and within five minutes of him getting down to the third level, he said the voices and footsteps from the top floor started happening again. At which point he says he ran upstairs with a hammer, and he was kind of irritated, and he scoured the, set, the, the third floor again, nothing. He then looked on the street, there was nothing there. He says he went to the second floor to think maybe he was hearing it from the second floor, nothing on the second floor so he said at that point he went downstairs started packing his bags up when all of a sudden he started hearing footsteps coming down the staircase he says they were getting louder and louder and he tucked himself into the room right behind the staircase and waited there until they got so loud he says he figured they were right outside the, the doorway so he said and then they stopped so he came bursting through the door and he looked at the area at the landing, and there was nothing there. And then all of a sudden, he said, this wild, cold, chilly breeze came whisking across the back of his neck. And he says it was weird because it was 90 degrees that day. He goes, he couldn't understand what this was. And he says, all of a sudden, the hair on the back of his neck stood straight up. And he says, he ran out of the house and didn't come back for six weeks. Wow. And I said, wait a second. Is that when you were told the other guys that you were off and out and send Salvador taking care of your mother? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, I said, I remember that because I ended up, he was the tile man. And I said, I was having the time of my life looking for somebody to put the tiles in the master bathroom. So I said, I was so impatient. I said, screw it. I don't know when he's coming back. I'm not waiting anymore. I'm going to do it myself. So I took initiative myself like an idiot, to put the tiles in the floor. And I said, you take a look at the tiles down there, and you tell me if that isn't me, my handiwork putting the tiles in. To this day, the tiles sit 
a little askew, high and low. <laughs> They're not properly spaced. They're a little bit, you know, badly in place by me. And I sit there and I look at this and I said, that's why the tiles suck, because I couldn't wait for you to get back. And he goes, that's exactly what I told him. I was too afraid to come back to the to the house to work with this at all. Now, once you were finally moved in, uh, about how long did it take before you started uh, experiencing different phenomena? I would say immediately. I mean, I, I've had I, right after I moved in here, I had, I had a um, a housewarming party, and I had about fifty people here, and I had literally about five people tell me the following day that they had some weird experience in the house in different places. And what's weird is one person said they went into the, the the upstairs bath, and all they know is they felt like they weren't alone, and somebody was in the bathroom with them, and they described like just this weird sensation that it just wasn't right, that it was weird, that there was like sensation of somebody was watching me sitting in the bath and putting my makeup on. Another person said they went to the third level and were down in the to bed in the basement room you know, doing something, looking around, and they felt somebody tap them on the shoulder, and they turned around, and there was no one there. Another person says that they were on the second level looking around the house, and they could have sworn that they heard somebody calling their name. And I said, and they said, but there was nobody there with me. I was alone. And then I went upstairs and got you and said, did you, did you call my name? And I said, no. And they said, okay. The following day, they relayed to me why they asked me if I was calling their name that night because they said they heard somebody calling their name from down the hallway, and no one was there calling their name. So it sounds like the, the spirits were waiting for for somebody there to interact with. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Now, what, what kind of, uh, you personal, uh, what kind of, you know, phenomena triggered your response? I mean, with, like you said, the lights went on. I mean, is that something that happened immediately? You know, the the lights going on and off or, or any sounds or anything when you were there alone? When I was here alone, I can tell you that I've had the experience of hearing sounds from other parts of the house. I've had my dogs, my Rhodesian Ridgeback. The only reason why I say this is because Rhodesian Ridgebacks are known for not barking unless there's a threat to the house. Mm -hmm. He has gone ballistic at the front door. And I will open the front door thinking there's somebody there and there's no one there. And he'll start tracking things that are not visible to the human eye, but he will behave as if he's tracking an object that's there, but there's nothing there. I have my cats do the same thing, chasing things that are not there, and there are no insects, and there are no dust particles. Um, my girlfriend recently had thought she was having a heart attack because she was having these stabbing pains in her chest and her upper heart. She goes, oh my God, she goes, something is hitting me because I'm having a heart attack. And I said, that's not a heart attack. And she goes, why is that? And I said, Does it, tell me to describe the pain. She goes, like somebody's stabbing something into my chest. And I said, that's, she's an empath, as I said. And so mm -hmm. she's empathically sensing the, the feelings of the murder victims, which is not uncommon for other people that have come through the house telling me that they felt... Um, uneasy or nauseous and feeling kind of like lightheaded and feeling like sick when they come in the house and then they go outside the house and they're fine. I, as recently as, as about, I'd say, here's a real interesting story. I just redid the floors in the house 
with pergo floors, laminated flooring. And the man who whose company did the installation came by to do some fit, some finishing work. He brought his nine-year-old and his 11-year-old son in the house. And they didn't know anything about the murders. And they're coming through the house, and they're walking through onto the second floor, and we're just about to leave. And his nine-year-old son, who's very, very quiet, said to me, Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I said, What? He goes, I just heard a man, I just heard a, a, somebody breathing heavily and hard, like labored breathing in my ear. I said, like this, like... And the kid said, yeah, yeah, that's it. And that was like less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's ironic is, he is not the first person to describe a heavy labored breathing sound in the same exact spot as so many others have. And I didn't mention to him two words because I didn't want to freak the kid out when he told me this, but it was corroboration with several other times when other individuals have said to me, independent of the other, that they hear the sound of a man or a person breathing, like, like labored breathing in that same exact spot. So at what point... Sorry, go ahead. Sure. Uh, I was going to say, at what point in the um, the experiencing of this different phenomena, at what point did the correlation come about that it could be the victims of the Manson murders? Well, when I saw the spirit of Jay Sebring appear at the foot of my bed um, three years ago in July, and I then, three months later in October, I was at the LAPD looking and seeing, I knew then that all my suspicions that the victims of the murders were passing through here and visiting me. I knew it was definitely that was who it was that I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, like I said, other psychics had friends of mine who were sensitive have come through the house and described seeing a blonde-haired woman walk in front of them and pass by them, or they saw the glimpse of, of something out of the corner of their eye when they turned, they, they caught the glimpse of an image of a woman walking by them. That's when I knew that these weren't just apparitions of some spirits, but specifically the victims of the murders. And so that led you to do more research and, and more digging into what happened? Yeah, it led me to, to want to be more curious, and I'm a kind of a sensitive person in, a, in many ways, that when I remember as a child hearing about the murders, I was really motivated and, 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 and upset and really touched that these people who were in, their, in the prime of their life were slaughtered and cut down right in the middle of their, their lives. That I felt terrible. I cried when I was a kid about it and when I saw the pictures in the book Helter Skelter and read the story when I was like 12, 14 years old. I just absolutely identified with them. I said, how, how tragic. What a way to go. What a waste of life. What, what a what a abysmal way for somebody's life to end for no real reason other than you know to fulfill somebody's weird twisted idea of what they were what, what of, of being sacrificed and, and really um i really felt i felt sad i really felt sad about their demise and their death and to this day i, I feel nothing but but respect for them and I feel like they should be honored and venerated and not treated like a footnote to an insane murder spree that took place. 
that they have become more or less venerated and remembered as nothing more than 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 the footnotes to history to Charles Manson and to these other people that committed the murders. Exactly, it, yeah. It seems like now it's like, oh, you know, people, everybody knows who Charles Manson is these days, but you ask them who it was that the Manson family murdered, and they're like, oh, uh, some actress, I think. Yeah, and what's sad is, is that she's not remembered for being an actress. She's remembered in a lot of people's minds as being the sex object and this and that, which she wasn't. She was a quite an accomplished, talented, upcoming star. I mean, I've seen some of her movies, and I've watched video interviews with her. She was anything but a dumb, stereotypical blonde. Mm -hmm. She was an accomplished, struggling, striving to be a taken seriously dramatic actress. I saw something called All Eyes on Sharon Tate, which was an MGM promo that was put out in 1967 about a movie that she had done in England, which was her first movie, really, a dramatic film called Eye of the Devil. And it's incredible, the, the talent and the range and the potential and her acting ability and her, her vulnerability as, a, as an actress that was so apparent there that it's really sad that she did and is this looked upon as, oh, she was in that, that stupid beach movie with Tony Curtis, and she did this, and she was just, you know, she was in Valley of the Dolls, and she wasn't an accomplished actress. She really didn't have an opportunity to, to spread her wings and become the accomplished actress and the well-respected, talented actress that she really was. And that's really what really defines, defies my logic, is that had she had the opportunity to continue and live, she would have made some very, very, very big statements and big movie roles that would be still more memorable than what we remember, remember her from, like Valley of the Dolls and this other um, surf movie that she was in, this beach movie that she was in, because she really was a talented actress and really had the chops to take it to the next step and possibly win an Academy Award because she had the talent and the look and the charisma and the charm and the vulnerability to take it to the next step. And now, in, in addition to, to her being murdered as well, though, uh, and you, you want to talk about footnotes, some the other people that were murdered as well have, have oh, become yeah. they, footnotes themselves. Yeah, I, 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 should not, I should not and I did not attempt to forget mm -hmm. and to venerate Sharon alone because there's something that people don't understand. Her ex-fiancé, dear friend, Jay Sebring, was, was the reason why we today can go to a hairstylist to get our men, to get a, to, for men to go get their hair cut. Because up until that point in 1963 when Jay broke out in his own right and became the hairstylist to the stars, he took what was always considered a feminine type of um, an occupation of being a hairstylist and opened it up to men and made men important as far as their grooming concerns and their styling concerns. Instead of going to the neighborhood barber and having a guy that had a, a candy, what was it called, a candy cane light bar in front of their their um, barber shop, mm -hmm. he, he laid waste to the whole mythology of men's hairstyling needs to go to you need to go to a to a barber they don't he took that all and removed that from the male psyche 
he created men's hairstyling and perfected it into an art form where Vidal Sassoon and Jose Iber and all these others that followed in his footsteps owe him such a debt of gratitude because Jay had left the army in, six, in 1962 and struck out on his own and said, you know something, men don't have enough respect to their grooming. He took it upon himself to create a men's hairstyling salon and say that men's hairstyling is not just taking a bowl and putting it around their head and trimming it around and just doing the same old song and dance that they've been doing for hundreds of years. He said men's hairstyling should be treated like an art form and we should have different styles and different cuts. And he created this whole, how should I say, this whole motif of men becoming more important than just a simple tool. And he really created and identified that men needed to have their hair done in different ways and there's different styles and formulas to creating men's hairstyling instead of just a regular old scissor cut. And, and he and had a, a connection to, to Sharon Tate. Uh, yeah. They, they were once lovers? They No, they, were, they weren't just, they were, no, they were star-struck fiancé and fiancés. They really were... Uh, really, really, really close. And in the fondest memories of them, I'd have to say, they were best, best, best friends. Shay really loved her with such an unconditional love and with such a passion to her and such a friendship with her that when when she split off and, and decided to fall in love with Roman Polanski, he went there to Europe, to England, to make sure that she was serious about it and that she was okay and that she was that he wanted to make sure that she was right about this. And he didn't act jealous because he then became good friends with Roman. And the three of them hung out together and they were like best friends. And what's really funny is is that Sharon stayed earlier in like 64, 60, I think it was 1964, 65, Sharon was staying at Jay's house. And Jay was renting the house that was owned by, oh God, I forget his name, um, an old 1920s Hollywood producer who had was in love with this starlet, oh, what was her name? Um, not Greta Garbo. Um, I forgot the girl's name. Jean Harlow. He was involved with Jean Harlow. And he had committed suicide because he had, a, had this weird proclivity. He didn't know if he was gay or straight. And he loved Jean so much that he was so tormented by, his, by her by her beauty and his inability to really, you know, how should we say, fulfill her dreams in bed, that he committed suicide. Sharon, and, and this is a famous story, saw his ghost appear in Jay's bedroom, walking around the room, and didn't even acknowledge Sharon. And Sharon ran out of the room, ran down the stairs, and stopped in the middle of the staircase when she looked down at the bottom of the stairs and saw a woman's body, dead, stabbed, and bleeding, and she didn't identify that with her, but that's what they say she saw, was an, a premonition of her death, her impending death in the future. I want to say, I'm, I'm, I think I've seen something uh, about that case before, was that was that a house that had a, a pool in the back, and it was kind of like a Swiss, Swiss design architecture to the house, is that... I'm not sure, but my gut feeling is, is yeah, that's the house at night. I think it was, I forgot the address, but somewhere on Eastern Drive, about a mile up from here. Yeah, I believe I saw something maybe on the E-Network about that. 
And they, they yeah, talked about that been, same case. Yeah, that has been publicized a lot. And the fact that Sharon saw the image and then she ran upstairs back into the bed and hid herself under the covers and just sat there cowering until she finally went to sleep. And now, um, she was, how, how pregnant was she when... She was when she was killed. She was eight and a half months pregnant. And now I don't want to. I should not. I should not stop with all the other different victims of the crime because I don't want to spend all my time talking about Jane Sharon. Mm-hmm. But there was another person. There was there's three other people that were involved in murder that night. There was Wojtek Frykowski, who had survived the concentration camps during World War II in Poland, and who was a very 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 close childhood friend of Roman Polanski's. Who was involved with and was 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 involved with and seeing Sharon's friend Abigail Folger of the Folger's Coffee Empire, who was from San Francisco. She was also one of the victims that night. And Wojtek and Abigail had moved in with Sharon at Roman's Roman Polanski's request several months before the murders. I think it was April that they moved in because the Sharon and Roman had moved in. To the house in March 1969, after Candace Bergen and Terry Melcher, Doris Day's son, had vacated the premises. And Sharon had told Candace after she'd been at a party there at the house, said, This is my dream house. If you ever stop renting the house, please, or stop leasing the house, please tell me because I'd love to move in. And shortly after they moved out in February, Sharon and, and Roman Polanski moved in. I think it was the 22nd of March, or not, maybe it was on the 13th, the middle of March. I don't know if it was the 13th, 19th of March, 1969, but they moved in. And a month later, Roman asked Wojtek and Abigail to, to move in as well because it was such a big house and to keep Sharon company while he was running around doing his thing on other projects in Europe. Yeah, where exactly was he uh, on the night of the murders? I do believe he was in London or in New York at the time working on something, on a project. And what's really sad is is that a lot of people think that Charles Manson didn't know that Sharon was living there, that he knew only that Terry Melcher, the record producer, was living there. The fact of the matter is is that Charles had come by in early, in late March, early April, looking for Terry Melcher and went to the house, and there's an infamous, there's a famous story that is told by an Iranian photographer who at the time was in the backyard taking pictures and glamour shots of Sharon. And the story goes that Charles had, had knocked on the front door and no answer, and he went around the back, and he ran into this, uh, this photographer, and the photographer said, who are you? And, goes, and Charles had said, is Terry here? I'm looking for Terry. And the photographer said, no, Terry doesn't live here anymore. And Sharon then poked her head around the corner and said, you're looking for Terry? He doesn't live here anymore. He moved out mm-hmm. sometime a couple months ago. And Charles had saw Sharon and, I, and made the connection that she was now there. So the coincidence factor goes down to nil and zero because he knew that Terry had moved out and that Sharon Tate had moved in and, and was living there. And, and this, of course, was his uh, decision to, to give a little kickstart to the helter-skelter, to the race war. Um, um, I myself have a great deal of issues with the race war card okay. for, for, for a number of reasons. The whole helter-skelter theory, to me, doesn't hold any water. Because, in theory, if the theory holds true, 
then how come there were only two nights of mayhem and murder and then nothing happened? There were no more murders committed that were of such vulgar uh, magnitude and such grave magnitude as those that were publicized in the paper mm -hmm. after that murder took place. Well, I mean, uh, and they didn't. They didn't. Charles Manson wasn't accused of the murder for six, seven months after the murders. So, if you're going to try to create a race riot, and you're going to commit such heinous crimes and take the valuables and the personal belongings of these people, and then put them into the hands or put them into and place them in garbage cans or throw them around in places in, as they were called then, the um, the black neighborhoods and expect the people in those neighborhoods to pick up credit cards of people who are all over the newspapers and all over the pub all over the television and uh, and think that these people were living in caves and didn't know that the murders of Sharon Tate and Abigail Folger, Wojtek Fikowski, um, Stephen Parent and Jay Sebring could possibly mean that if you found their credit card, you would go out there and use them you'd have to be pretty well set dumb yeah. to not be able to identify with it. So that, to me, was the first conclusion that I drew that said, this can't happen. How... The fact that... that I, have to, I want to make my apology. I'm not trying to say anything bad by the black neighbors, but again, no, in I'm... theory, in theory, what was promit, pr promoted by the Helter Skelter theory is, is that Charles Manson was then going to take the personal belongings and effects and credit cards and put them in the hands or put them in areas where people of African-American origin would find them and then pick them up and use them is, to me, absolutely, positively not likely. And it's not it's not you that's... that's it's, no, this it's is the theory, what it's the theory that has that problem. This is what the district attorney had used as the evidence and used as his theory behind the reason why Sharon Tate and the others were killed, and, and that his theory was that they would then take the credit cards and disperse them into those areas, and then think that these people were blind and didn't know about the murders, and that they would then be foolhardy enough to use a credit card or to use the checks of people that were plastered all over the news. And, and Manson being an intelligent person, I mean, it's it's been documented, his, his high level of IQ and... I mean, he, he couldn't have believed that that would be possible either, so... Right. Uh, I think that, 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 the, that the people that, that Vincent Pugliosi was attesting to, um, following through with this, this line of thought, were taken advantage of. I think that that whole theory just doesn't work on that level alone. The second problem is, is that the murders did not continue after that night, after the La Bianca night on the 9th of August. They, they came to a complete halt. Now, to me, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Why, if you're trying to stir up the race riots and race war, would you stop with killing with the killing of five or correction, five, seven people? Why in two nights when you weren't found? When he wasn't discovered for months, and this wasn't connected to him at all? Why would the murders? Why would the murders not? Con excuse me, continue. And don't you why should they stop? You also have a, a problem with some of the, the facts that were presented in Helter Skelter, uh, and one of which... No, no, no. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, what, what I have a problem with is, is I don't remember in Helter Skelter the fact that... Well, let me, first, let, me, let me first go back and let me explain what theories I have heard that make more sense mm -hmm. to the murders. 
first series is which has been on E uh, Hollywood Online and all those things. The true Hollywood story is the fact that the theory that I've heard from that show was that Charles Manson's um, one of Charles Manson's male followers, who was nicknamed Cupid, was put in jail a week before the the Tate murders, and that the girls, the the, the followers of Manson, the family were really upset because they were very fond of him and they really enjoyed him. He was supposed, he was a great lover and they really enjoyed his company and they really, really dug him, as the words were used. And the theory that they presented is, is that Charles, the girls who came to Charlie and said, look, how do we get Cupid out of jail? How do we get him back here? We want him free. He doesn't belong in jail. And he was accused of committing a real heinous, atrocious murder where he had had written things on the wall and the people's blood and this and that and the idea was then promoted let's do a copycat murder let's make it seem like he can't be the killer if two murders of such grave magnitude take place after he's in jail then he can't be the killer if the murders are still continuing like the murder he committed and he is not, and he is in jail. How could he have been the, the murderer? So that theory makes a lot more sense to me about it, about what took place. My own personal theory is that the dynamics of Charles Manson and Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson, either Dennis or Brian, I don't know who met who, but I know that there's a connection between Brian and Dennis, or Brian Wilson or Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher, the record producer. And Charlie was friends with, with both of them. And I don't know who met who first. Did Brian Wilson or Dennis Wilson meet Charlie and then meet Terry Melcher? Or did Terry Melcher meet Charlie well, first and then introduce him? From, from what I've read, um, they actually, it was a chance encounter that they were able to meet Dennis Wilson. It was uh, Dennis. Right. He, he picked up a couple of uh, Manson followers, uh, hung out with them Girl. for a few hours, and when he dropped him off at home, and then when he went back to his house the next morning from the recording studio, Manson was waiting for him in his driveway. And the two I, actually struck up a friendship, and then he introduced him to Terry Melcher. All right, so that's the way it was. All right, well, I don't know. I, again, I, I, I claim ignorance on, on how the connection was made. I know that there was a connection. I'm not sure what the connection was. But my understanding was is that what you said is true, and Dennis was interested in doing in using some of the songs that Charlie had had given him, mm -hmm. and was interested in, in doing something. Now Charlie had always been an aspiring songwriter and always wanted to be part of the music business. He wanted to. He thought of himself as a creative poet, of a songwriter, which is fine and dandy. I hold no no problems with that. But what I think possibly my own theory has happened was is that once. Dennis Wilson and Charlie Manson broke off contact, and after after this point, Charlie became very, very irritated and betrayed and felt hurt and felt, as I term it, the spurned lover syndrome, which is you were given, you were led to believe one thing, and you were led to believe that you were going to do great things and you were going to have your dreams come true, and finally get what you want in life, which in his dream was to, to be a recording artist. He wanted to really be that. So once Dennis Wilson cut him off, and then Terry Melcher kind of shunned him away, 
that he went to a place where he was so felt so much betrayal and animosity and so much hatred and vitriolic pain about this that he basically said, screw you all, how dare you do this to me, and took such great offense to it that he was really pushed over the edge and he basically lashed out and wanted to get back at Terry Melcher and those who had preceded him and those who were successful. And it didn't matter that he wanted to take his revenge out on the establishment, on those that he felt were getting what they wanted in life, and he did not. And he was the one who was left high and dry and left alone and left betrayed and scorned. And because of that rage and animosity, he took it out on people who he put down on the hit list as people who he thought deserved to pay the ultimate price for his disconsolated feelings. Outside of what you know, the Ghost Hunters did, I've had some people from the Ryan Institute, formerly of Duke University, the paranormal, um, I guess it's the paranormal department, which was at Duke University in Raleigh, had come over here three years ago, and I brought some other parapsychologists, some psychics in here, and they went through the house. And I did it in a very much controlled um, type of a, a scientific type of a manner, where on one night we brought in three psychics, another night we brought in six psychics, including um, James von Prague's mentor, a guy named Brian Edward Hurst, who knew Sharon's mother and did work with Sharon's mother to try to contact Sharon. And um, on both occasions, what I did was I brought each psychic in alone, had them videotaped with three cameras, one thermal imaging camera and two regular cameras, and brought them in the house and didn't tell them where they were coming because I didn't want to do like a dead famous type of a show. I wanted one psychic at a time being kind of like blindfolded. They didn't know where they were going when they came in here. We didn't tell them about it. We just said, this place has got activity. What do you pick up? Roll them. And... Each one went through, and it was like a whole bag of tricks was opened up from their point of view. They're saying, well, I'm, I'm automatically I'm feeling something very heavy and dark, and I'm feeling something very sad. And then as they went through the house, they would interact with different spirits that were here. And did they get any names on, on any of them? Or? No. They got, they, the descriptions for the most part were dark-haired woman, dark-haired man, um... A, a woman with, with light blonde hair um, requesting, you know, the woman was saying, help my baby, help my baby. And the, the, that psychic that literally I'm repeating, I'm speaking of, is a school teacher in Orange County who does this as a hobby. And the information she was getting was so compelling and so um, real and so dramatically just in just just so dramatic and so organic and natural it was like oh my god and um it really kind of like i said sent chills down my spine because she was most authentic about her about what she was describing which to me is is is, is so much more powerful than having bringing six psychics in at once and having each one bounce their feelings and their thoughts off of the other one's commentary. Mm -hmm. And to me, it, it, it just, those shows bore me at this point. I mean, I've, I'm, just, I'm just sick and tired of watching them, you know, watching one psychic say, oh, I see a man with a pocket watch. And the other one commenting, yeah, he's, he's very, you know, interested in time. He's very concerned with time. I'm like, 
Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I can see actors improv better than that. Yeah, really, when they just start working off one another, and it's it's kind of, uh, they could really believe what they're seeing, but it's right. kind of, it's being influenced by what somebody else is already suggesting. Exactly, and I didn't like the fact that there was so much suggestibility from one person to the other. They said, if you bring them in one at a time, and you shoot them each individually, and you have them in different locations when they come in, they won't be cross-contaminating the other person's beliefs or opinions. And, and as you said, it's important for them not to know about, you know, who you think is, is haunting your home in advance yeah. because of the stigmas that's attached to the murders and, and what might have gone on there. Uh, I mean, are you able to isolate them from that completely? Oh, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, the video footage we shot three years ago is, is, is just absolutely riveting. And what's interesting is is the fact that when they came out of the house, we would then put them in a new location so they wouldn't be able to talk to one another, again, you know, influencing the other's opinion. So at the end of the night when we brought the three of them back or the six of them back, we'd sit them down in a roundtable discussion and then get their feedback as each one was talking, and then we revealed where they were. And then the floodgates went bursting open with, I can't believe it, because I was feeling so many more things, and I was just so, I couldn't say them because they just seemed so outrageous that I felt pains in my chest and in my upper body and bashing in the back of my head and just headaches and feeling like somebody was strangling me. I was going, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Then when they realized that the connection was made, they were like, oh, my God. And then it all just came clear to them where they were and what they were picking up. Now, do you feel, do you feel that you have any psychic sensibilities at all, or...? Yeah, I'd have to say I've got um, some. I've got some kind of not gifts, but I've got. I've had ESP since I was a child, and I've had precognition, um, clear audience, where a clear, 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 clear audience where I can actually hear things. Mm-hmm. And um, in the house, I've actually seen the the spirit of Jay Sebring about three years ago in the summer, when uh, my mom was dying of cancer, and. At the time, I didn't even recognize Jay as Jay Sebring. I just recognized this gentleman standing at the foot of my bed with his left arm extended with his index finger pointing in the direction towards the Tate, I mean, towards the driveway. And he just sat there turning his torso towards the driveway three times. And I was like, what, my mom's dead? She died? What? What's going on? What's going on? And um, I later on found out that it was Jay Sebring when I went to the LAPD and was researching to do a documentary about the hauntings and the backstory so I could get photographs of the evidence of what the house, where my house, where my father and I built my house, what it was like on the night of the murders. And there was nothing here. And coincidentally, I heard from somebody that told me around the same period of time before, before or after the Tate murders, there was a gentleman whose body was done on the hillside, possibly where my house sits now. Oh. So, and he says this is he said the APD records that there was a body that was found in the driveway that was on the side of the hill and my house was a house and is a hostel at the time. Uh-huh. So we've had also the fact that the area is inundated with Indian historically speaking, this area was in, was inhabited by a small band of Indians called the Tongva tribe. And according to the history book about less than a mile away from where my house is, down the street on Benedict Canyon, in 1880, was the last insurrection of an Indian wars of, of Southern California and Los Angeles in 1880, where three Indians were killed and their bodies were buried on the spot. And they 
unearthed the bodies in 1925 when they broke ground to build the first women's club of Beverly Hills. And there's a placard on the spot where the bodies were found, and it says the three Indian bodies were unearthed on this spot in 1925. So it's, it's well, good Indian ground. Let's hang on one second. We're just having some weird sure. audio. I was, I was saying, uh, it's possible that there was uh, al- already quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of energy built by either. There's still is. We have in this house, for instance, you can take a geomagnetometer, and you'll get a reading of you know between three five hundred minimal here. In the front of the house, we have minus four hundred milligauss reading. At the top of the staircase, of the still it goes up to plus two thousand milligauss. Wow. We've had Dr. Barry Taft come here, which I don't even associate with him anymore, but he had gone and done research in the house where he had brought a air iron counter. During the Santana winds, which were when we have tremendous like 20 to 40 mile an hour winds blowing up and down the canyon, which are generating a lot of static electricity, he went outside on one of those occasions and got a reading of 2,200 parts per million um, positive ion count on the outside. When he came in the house, the air iron counter reversed reverse polarity and was a 22 million parts per cubic centimeter negative, which is reversing polarity. It's almost impossible to create that effect without having huge DC battery magnets built into the side of the house to create reversing polarity of that degree. It's almost impossible physically unless you were in a scientific... Um, uh, Unless you basically a have a, psych- a cyclotron, kind of you know, sucking the energy out. Plus, we've got places in the house where you can take a compass and you'll have deflection of your of true north by as many as 180 degrees. Wow. And it's some parts of the house with a compass where there's nothing more than a wooden wall and next to the earthen wall room where you will actually get the compass to spin around a few times so it actually comes back to, to half normal. And has there been geological surveys? Is there any reason yeah. proven that way why it might happen? Well, according to this famous parapsychologist, Dr. Taft, he said that the U.S. Geological Survey was contacted, and they said that the house sits on... God. Oh, God. Somebody's calling in. Hold on one quick second. Sure, no problem. All right, that was... That, whoever it was, they hung up. Okay. Okay. Which is fine. But um, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, now this, again, I can't go on the record on because I don't know if Dr. Taft is telling the truth, but he said according to the U.S. Geological Survey, the um, house sits on a magnetic anomaly that is not pre-seismic, but most likely pre-volcanic, meaning even though there's a fault line a couple of blocks away from here, less than a half a mile, they said that there are large vacuous areas in the Earth below this house, this area, that extend for about a thousand feet, where the magnetic anomalies is so great that they believe that there is possibly, and I have to stress this, a volcanic lava river or lava tube underneath the Earth here. So as the lava or the magma is shifting across the plane, it is creating a magnetic field disturbance on the surface of the Earth up here. And this is the epicenter. Which in, in our studies of paranormal activity, uh, Matt Moniz, our 
our science advisor can tell you that just sounds like it's a perfect breeding ground for holding in some sort of energy. Well, exactly. You can tell him exactly what's been theorized again by some of the other people saying that this house is, stands to, is standing like a, um, a large containment vessel. Not the house, but the area. He, he just said a glass holds water and it becomes it's a, a giant capacitor. Of water. So in this area, a thousand feet from the epicenter here out in a radius, type of a pattern, you would have a containment vessel for such magnetic field anomalies that paranormal activity could actually exist on a regular basis. And because of if you have the dynamics or the, the circumstances where you have the dynamics of a infamous murder where four or five people were murdered and their life was cut off in midstream, the theory is it's like a, a person is in a vehicle is an analogy to a, a per, of, of a body and a soul. The soul is the occupant inside the human being, and the occupant inside of a motor vehicle is the, is the analogy. As a motor vehicle travels down the street at 55 miles an hour and it comes to a sudden crash, the person inside is ejected through the windshield and then continues through inertia and through... Um, what is it, uh, I guess, momentum, mm -hmm. that their body then carries through the windshield and they're thrown forward. And the same theory in the same regard would be a soul inside of a body. When that body is stopped and comes to a sudden impact or sudden death, that the soul is being propelled through the body and continues onward, separating from the body and doesn't know that it's dead and is actually still staying in that area because it is released from the body but doesn't know it's released from its body and that it's dead. Now, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. You've mentioned a couple times uh, Dr. Barry Taff, who's, who's known for his work on the Entity case. Uh, yeah. But it sounds to me like you, you've kind of cut ties with Dr. Taff. Is that yeah, the case? I did because Dr. Taff is opposed to us talking to the ghost hunters. Dr. Taff then is making such demands about what we do and what we don't do that I began to feel a little bit um, encumbered by his uh, restrictive nature. What, so he was I, against publicizing the case? Is that what it was? Or? No, he was, he was very regimented and trying to regulate who could and who could not come to investigate. And I began to feel that it was a little bit prohibitive on his part to dictate to me who we could and could not associate with. Because I said, I'm not concerned with with, with what in, which investigations come here at, at, at that time because I had, had Las Vegas uh, Ghost Hunter Society come here, San Gabriel uh, Ghost Hunter Society and a bunch of other different uh, investigative groups come through here and he says no you can't use the ghost hunters, they're terrible and he told me all these things that they're fraudulent and stuff and I said you know enough is enough, I can't have you handcuffing me to telling me who I can and cannot associate with and who I can and cannot invite up here to do an investigation. This is becoming too prohibitive. I mean, and isn't the name of the game to try to get as many different uh, people exactly. in there that have cooperating evidence? I basically was saying, look, it's an investigation. It's an ongoing investigation. My feeling was as many people that were legitimate in the ghost hunting community to come here and investigate, to be able to share their conclusions and their um, findings with me is better than telling one group no, and I'm playing favorites with other groups. Mm -hmm. Yes, I found that it was, you know, there were. I wasn't going to bring Sylvia Brown here, 
Um, but I was interested in bringing the Ghost Hunters here because I thought that they had something that would lend a little bit more credibility and a little bit more validity to the case. I mean, it's not like you want to uh, have a wide-open-door policy for any investigator that wants to come in. I understand why you have to be somewhat selective, but... Right. Yeah, I'm sure he won't let you in, Moniz. Once he sees you, he's going to be like, Oh, my God, Charlie Manson's back. So, sorry. Yeah, well, it, it was, he, he had an experience, or at least he told me he had experience with the ghost hunters years ago, and that he was blackballed by them, and he was not allowed to, 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 to be working with them. And I said, I asked them if they had ever heard of him, and they said, no, we don't know who the hell he is, you know. Well, how was your experiences working with, with the crew from Ghost Hunters and Chris Fleming? I'll put it to you this way. I went in with the most skeptical mind because of what I was told by Dr. Taff. And honestly... I was very skeptical, and when they came out here and I watched their procedures, and mind you, they were the last investigative crew that had come through here out of, after I'd had maybe 10 different investigative groups come in through the house and do their investigations. I, find them, I found them to be as credible um, with the resources that they had, mind you, because I'd seen Dr. Taft's equipment and his... Um, his, his ethical you know, practices, and I was impressed with his stuff. However, they don't have all the high-tech equipment that Dr. Taff has, but for what they have, I was impressed with their procedural um, accountability of taking the place and taking it apart, so to speak. They went to the lengths of having my cats, the two cats I have, my two dogs, and all my aquariums and all the electronics equipment unplugged in the house. So when they went in the house, it was pretty much dead, clean, empty. It mm -hmm. wasn't, um, there was nothing left to chance. So if there was any interference from electronics, it wasn't from anything that was inside the house and naturally and, and um, man-made occurring. And, and speaking it, of electronics, what did you think of that K2 meter that Chris Fleming brought along? Um, my personal belief of what they found, and I've read a lot of the free information that was left up on the forums on Sci-Fi about the Ghost Hunters show, I am in total disagreement with 99% of the slanderous remarks that were put up on there. I believe that Chris was 100% on the up and up. I believe that the K2 meter was not, I repeat, was not rigged. I don't think that there was anything fraudulent about their methodology and the credibility. I was pretty satisfied that what they did was 100% legitimate. Again, having seen 10 other ghost investigative groups come through the house, having experienced Dr. Taft's experience and his equipment in the house. They all have different equipment that they use, mm -hmm. but they're all hunting for the same thing, and the methodology is pretty much the same, trying to um, get rid of all possible interference from, you know, from the aquariums, from the pumps, from the refrigerators. It was pretty much done on a pretty legitimate up-and-up basis. I was impressed. The equipment they have... You know, if they were, if they wanted to, they could drop another fifty grand into equipment and upgrade their equipment to the real super high tech equipment. However, with what they had, equipment wise, I was impressed with what their methodology was and their practices. So, I think that what Chris got corroborates what I know for a fact I've experienced in the house here, and corroborates what I've seen firsthand and heard firsthand in the house. Now, mind you, I've made peace with the en energies, as I call them, and the entities and the visitors here, because at one point about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I was experiencing a large number of 
television of the television across my bedroom going on in the middle of the night when no one was here and the remote control was on top of the TV and the light in that bedroom had gone on several times in the middle of the night when I'd woken up and wanted to get a glass of water and I'd walk into my hallway and I'd look and say, what the hell's the light doing on that bedroom? I haven't been in the bedroom, that bedroom all day long. Why is the light on? And when I got my electric bill, I had a fit. I was furious because I knew that the energy entities, or the, I won't call them entities because that's, that's a defamatory remark, I think, but the energies, the spirits that were here were playing around trying to get my attention. So when I got my electric bill, I went to the end of the hall and I went up against the concrete cinder block wall and I said, that's it. We've got to get this straight. And I almost felt like saying to bad, to my to like roommates, saying, enough is enough. I have got to come to an agreement with you all here once and for all. I built this house with my father. Therefore, I have every right and intention to stay here. Therefore, if you're going to visit my house and occupy this space with me, we've got to come to some agreement and some ground rules here. You cannot turn the television on in the middle of the night. You cannot turn the lights on anymore in the middle of the night because, as I said to them, and I quote, I just got the goddamn electric bill, and this can't go on anymore. You can't cost me money if you're not going to help pay the bill. This isn't right. Well, I'm going to assume, though, that, you know, they were just trying to let let you know that they were there, and by doing that, you were letting them know that you did know and you did accept that they were there. Oh yeah, no, I've come to grips with that long ago. I said, I said to them that I said, look, you can do whatever you like, but don't go using the electrical system and the grid and bumping up my electric bill. I can't afford this. Then I said to them, furthermore, if you want to appear to me. Do it like Jay did last year. He folded a full-body individual that was there. No blood, no guts, no disfiguring, you know, images. No body parts floating across the room. He's just appeared there like a full-body person. However, the image that I saw was more of a monochromatic image, and it was clearly a person. Mind you, I didn't recognize him because he had his natural hairstyle, which was more coarse and wavy and kinky than the, than the image that I'd seen in so many of those publicity shots. We had smooth, straight hair. Mm-hmm. And when I was at the LAPD and I was looking through the file of the sealed vault to see if I could get permission to use any of the photographs, I came across one photograph of him, an 8x10, and I looked at it and I said, oh my God, that's the man who I saw uh, three months earlier. And the cop said, who's what? And I said, oh, I said, who is this? He goes, that's a that's natural picture of Jay Sebring. I said, but but I thought he had straight hair. He goes, oh, you flip it over and says Jay Sebring with his natural hairstyle. So oh. that's why I didn't recognize Jay because he didn't appear as the image that I was familiar with. But the image who who he projected himself as was his normal self as a person without the fancy hair hairdo gel in his hair to relax his hair. And now is he and the only spirit that is visualized for you? He's the only spirit that I've actually seen a full-body apparition of, period. Now, that is not to say that I haven't had other experiences. As recently as six months ago, I had some people over um, on a private tour that I befriended, and I had them come over for dinner a couple of nights later. And during our dinner, a glass of red wine in between this woman's daughter and her daughter's friend slid across the dining room table six inches where the wine inside was literally cascading inside the glass. 
and I saw it right in front of my eyes in front of six other people there at the dining room table, and I said, okay, now I've seen it all. And I was just as nonchalant as anything because I just accept it as a function of the house. It doesn't scare me. I don't find it a fear factor or the, the Casper the friendly ghost pattern of, oh, my God, it's see ghost. Uh! Mm-hmm. As I've learned to realize, I'm more afraid of the living than I have anything to fear of the dead. Well, and, and with good reason because uh, I'm sure now that your story is out there and now that it's, uh, it's known that these spirits reside there, you're going to get all kinds of crazies and... and you know, Manson oh, followers probably camping out on your lawn. Let's let's pray to God that that doesn't happen. I'm, I'm hoping I'm, so. Yeah. I, I believe me. For years, for the five years that I've lived here, for the three preceding years that we built the house here, I have seen nothing but tourists come up here before my movie, before my investigations coming up here to venerate Sharon and the rest of them on the anniversary of the murder. Um, including other times during the year when there are tourists just driving up here, going to the end of the drive, taking photographs, noodling and ogling, and then driving off. So let's put it this way. It has not left the public's conscious, consciousness yet, and I doubt it ever will. No, certainly not. Something something that grisly and with the, just the, uh, it, it's kind of like it's a defining, iconic moment of the counterculture. Yeah, it's as I've as I've read since then, and I've heard so many times over. It really was the death knell to the age of innocence and the age of Aquarius. Absolutely, because it was such a horrific. And I'm telling you, I am one of the few people that can honestly say that I've seen the actual sealed vault photos and images of the murder victims of both LaBianca and the Tate murders, and I've seen. Almost every picture that the police have in there of the murder victims, both at the scene of the crime and at the morgue shot, and it is pretty ghastly and horrific and brutal. The murders were just so incredibly vicious and violent that the scars and the, not even the scars, but the lacerations to their arms, the defensive wounds that are on most of, on Abigail Folger and Sharon Tate's forearms are unbelievably graphically in, insane. It's, 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 it's horrific to see people who, who were in the prime of their life slaughtered and butchered, and I use that word very, very seriously. Butchered would be the most easily descriptive word to choose because they were hacked. Abigail Folger had a laceration on her left cheek that ran about four inches right below the eye socket across down across towards her jawline that was just a, like a wisp of flesh was just torn right open. Ooh. And it, there was no blood because it was a morgue shot, but it was just so gruesome and ghastly. I was just so, so full of remorse and so much sorrow and hatred towards these murderers that they come up for parole for what they, what, what, what they perpetrated to these people. I was just shocked. Well, and, and have you ever been laying in bed or something at night and, and having seen these photos and images? Does your mind just, you know, flash back to what you've seen and, and some of that horrific, uh, fo- some of the horrific stories and descriptions you've heard? Um, I'll, I'll tell you this. Not in the way you're describing it, but there are moments when, I have to say it's on the anniversary, where, and at certain other times of the year where I connect right in 
and can go right to the night of the murders and become the victims and see from an omnipotent point of view what was going on. And I've had people, psychics that have been here that have empathically been inflicted with pain wow. similar to their to their murders and similar to their stabbing wounds, including my girlfriend who's been here who on one night a couple of months like a month ago when we were talking about Sharon and she empathic she's an empath as well. She felt sharp scissor like stab wounds coming into her chest. And I was standing by she goes, she goes, Oh my god, I'm feeling pain and I said you're getting stabbed in your chest. And I pointed to three different locations on my chest, and she goes, how did you know those are the spots? And I said, because that was basically Sharon's energy coming through to connect with you, to let you understand what her pain was. And she had 16 stab wounds that were inflicted upon her. We're not talking about the defensive wounds to her forearms and the slashing you know, gestures. Mm-hmm. When they say stab wounds, they mean stab, like penetrating deep, cutting yeah. deep, and you know, jabs. And that's what's so unbelievable is when you look at the images of her on her naked body on the marble slab and you look at these cleaned up with no blood, but just the wounds are shown. It is so grotesque and so appalling and so horrific that you can't help but just close your eyes and just say, I can't believe it. She's nine months, eight and a half months pregnant, and she has stomach wounds that are just like a wedge. It's all you see is a, is a, is a because these are black and white and some of color, but the blood is not there, so you just have the flesh where the penetrating knife went in, and it is like a wedge, about a two-inch wedge, starting at a very fine point and going and gradually opening up like a quarter-inch wide you know, stab. And, and that's what's especially haunting about it is that you know her last words were her pleading for the life of her unborn baby. Yeah. Because that's what one of the psychics that was here three and a half years ago, I mean, three years ago now, said, I see a woman with a baby. She came down to the second floor landing and she goes, oh my God, because I see a woman with a baby and she's pleading with me to help the baby, help the baby, but I can't because the baby's dead. And it's just, so unnerving to hear these people who don't know where they are describe what they describe so vividly and so clearly that I know what they're talking about, but they have no idea what they're connecting to. But they're talking about the, the tragedy and how these people are, are wanting to leave and you know save me and protect me. And then, of course, the one woman who said that this, this, she sees a guy and he wants me to take him home. He's pleading for me to take him home, and I keep identifying that person being Jay Sebring, because Jay lived about less than a mile away from where the murders took place, up on Eastern Drive. And I keep on thinking that's got to be Jay wanting to go home. Mm-hmm. He wants to go home. Or it could have been Stephen Parent, the most unfortunate of all the victims, who's just literally at the wrong place at the wrong time. He was the uh, he was the driver that that was pulling up as they were as they were trying to get onto the property. It was in his 1964 Ford Rambler, and he was driving out the gate, and he had just seen was visiting with the um, caretaker. Um, God, I forgot the, the gentleman's name. He just passed away a year and a half ago. Um, 
and he just by happenstance was at the wrong place at the wrong time, leaving the 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 um, house as they were coming in, and he was the first one to die. He was shot by Tex Watson. He was shot by Tex Watson with a blunt blunt line twenty two caliber revolver, four times point blank range, and he was just graduated high school. Uh, we are talking to David Omen about the house at the end of the drive, the home that he built and now lives in, uh, which ha- has the spirits of the victims of the Manson family murders, uh, the, the Sharon Tate murders, uh, living in his house with him. So uh, you might have seen him on Ghost Hunters. Uh, we're talking to him tonight about his experiences in that house and about the movie that he's written, the fictionalized account of the hauntings called The House at the End of the Drive. Now, David, you had some pretty interesting footage that you posted on YouTube uh, and also on your website, and uh, we're going to link up to it at SpookySouthCoast.com, but your cat is actually following what's going on uh, as a supposed spirit is flying up and down the hallway. Definitely some uh, interesting video there, for sure. Yeah, you think that's pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, that's what we couldn't get over is when it first comes out, it just cuts right into the wall and... It, then it comes out the other side. You know what I mean? Right. Well, look, the first object that you're seeing, I think, is goes from the left plane to across the right. There's something that flies right across as this video starts. Yes. But then there's the object that goes down the hall, and then it comes back on itself, and then it comes up three-quarters of the way up the hall, and then it stops. It goes back and forth, and it goes through the, the... Right next to the door, there's a wall. It goes right into the wall. And then my girlfriend, who watched the video footage with me for the first time... We put it up on a blown-up screen, and she says, Do you see that? I said, See what? She goes, If you look closely on the left-hand side of the, um, of the hallway, as you're looking at the screen, if you can enlarge, you can actually see an outline of what looks like a baby crawling on the floor towards the camera. Wow. And I said, Oh, you've got to be kidding. And I blew it up, and I said... That does look like the outline of a, of, a, of a fetus or a baby, crawl, a newborn crawling up towards the camera in the middle of the hallway, towards the left-hand side of the frame. And now you've taken your, your views, uh, your experiences of what's happened, and you've created the house at the end of the drive, which is a, a fictionalized account of what really went on. Well, to be honest with you, the, the, the story House at the End of the Drive is based on my personal experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I created a story, very, very a, a fictitious story, changed the name, but it parallels my experiences in a, in a sense. My story is of a guy who buys a house on a private drive. That's dirt, the house is ridiculously inexpensive, and he's not told why. And he doesn't know that the end of the driveway is where, in 36 years ago, in 1969, this horrendous, heinous murder took place of four individuals. One is, is and all, I should say, I have modeled my characters based upon the victims, with the exception of Stephen Parent, and I have gone to great lengths to not exploit the victims. I didn't, I, I paid homage to Sharon, Voight, uh, Sharon and Abigail and Jay, and took Wojtek out and put the producer character in as Roman Polanski, not not naming him as Polanski, but it's it's sure, just making Polanski the illusion. Yeah. The Pardon? Just making the illusion to them. 
Yeah, well, I'm drawing a very, very close parallel without being exploitive because mm-hmm. I feel so much remorse for them, the victims. I would never go to a place to make a direct exploitive type of commentary on them. However, my, my, the, main, the four main victims are an aspiring actress who was modeled and looks a lot like Sharon. However, she's not eight and a half months pregnant. I put, I put uh, Jay is now the, um, the clothing designer to the stars, not a hairstylist to the stars. Instead of a, an, an heiress to a coffee empire, this is an heiress to a hotel chain a la Paris Hilton. And, of course, instead of having Stephen Parent there, which I couldn't explain away, I removed him from the project, of the project, so to speak, as being one of the victims. And I put Roman Polanski's character there as, the, as her boyfriend producer there. That's as far as the similarities go to the murders. I did not make the... I made the murderers one male and three females, but I did not make it a Tex Watson character. I literally molded and created my murderer to look similar in some regards to Charles. Mm-hmm. But his motivation is not about anything more than, how should we say, a spurned lover theory. I used that in my movie and made him to be the spurned, jilted lover of the actress who goes off to Vietnam and finds out that his story that he gave, that he told his girlfriend, who he thinks was his girlfriend, um, before he goes to Vietnam, who then gets involved with this producer who she meets at a party with her boyfriend, this, the, um, uh, was it Henry, Henry Packard, Henry Charles Packard, who's my murderer, and he's then sent off a week later to Vietnam, and while he's in Vietnam, he gets wind of a movie that he sounds eerily familiar to his story that he gave his girlfriend and told her about, and she then gets involved with this producer who's produced the movie, and he not only feels betrayed by her, but also betrayed by the fact that this producer has stolen his idea. Sure, yeah. So it's, but that's it's... his motivation. So it's the, the parallels to spurn lover theory. And in my mind, that way I pay homage to Sharon and all the rest of the victims without naming them, and also without exploiting them, and without paying homage more than just a, a, a reference to Charles and not making it about House of Skelter and such. Yeah, and I really did not. Not furthering to do his, that. not furthering his, his, you know, lunacy either. Uh, well, and then popularity in the public's eye because I didn't feel that was necessary. I thought it was a very disrespectful thing to do to Sharon and the rest of the victims. It's just not um, appropriate. And then the, the story recounts the the paranormal phenomena that this this character experiences. After yeah. he purchases this house. After he purchases the house, weird, bizarre things that are directly related to and um, based upon my experiences in the house. And Lance Hendrickson actually portrays a contract laborer who's here who is relating the story that I told you about, the laborer who was here that had the experience with mm-hmm. the voices and the footsteps. So Lance is literally recounting verbatim the the story that was told to me by the laborer here. And and who are and some of the other um, actors that are involved in the film? Um, well, one of the other actresses is Angela Jones, who was famous from um, Pulp Fiction. She was the Colombian taxi cab driver that drives Bruce Willis after the infamous 
knockout blow that kills the other boxer. Um, also, we have Jonathan Mangum, who is very well known from the Drew Carey show. He had a bit role, in, or a reoccurring role on that. He's also done a lot of commercials and also done a lot of, uh, he's a comedian, a stand-up comic, and he's worked with Wayne Brady on a lot of the different tours and with Drew Carey on the Drew Carey show and other things. So he's probably one of my, my, my favorite actors in the film, as a matter of fact, because he, he lends himself to the comic relief that breaks up a lot of the tension that's built up because of the activity in the house. And he's also plays it quite well as the voice of reason and skepticism in the film as well. So, and now, is, is when is this film uh, expected to be released? Oh, well, let me also tell you, the, um, the lead who plays myself, um, James Oliver, is, is also in Boardwalk Poets with Daniel Baldwin as well. And he's done a lot of other films that are coming out too. I didn't want to. I didn't want to publicize myself, but the character David King is directly based on myself it's, and my experiences here. It's hard when you're um, writing a character based on yourself, and you know you you got to make sure you keep it grounded. You don't want to seem like uh, you know you don't want to be like Quentin Tarantino and giving yourself all the best lines and giving yourself the scene stealing moments. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I made sure that it was loosely based on my, on myself and my character. I wouldn't go so far as to, to really paint myself into the movie because I didn't think it was fair and appropriate. But I thought that it was an interesting parallel with, with myself, with the experiences, which, like I wanted to tell you, um, about a, about six, seven, eight months ago, I was in the house watching the film White Checks in the third level with this face. And we're watching the movie, and then in the middle of the movie, I heard a voice of a gentleman talking, almost like he was a voice listening to somebody on an answering machine and not picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. I sat there and said, oh, God. I, I got up. I said, let me get the phone. So I go in the other room. I pick up the telephone, that extension, and the phone is, is just regular. And I said, oh, so there's a dial phone. Okay, fine. I pick up the other extension, which rings to a voicemail, and I dial the telephone number where the, where the answering machine was. The first thing I heard was, ring, ring. I stopped, and I thought to myself, wait a second. I didn't hear a telephone ring before I heard the voice of this guy talking. Did I? It's like, okay. But I could swear I heard a man's voice talking. So I go back in the other room, and I say to my date, I said, did, did you? She goes, who's on the phone? I said, I, I played dumb. I said, who was on what? She goes, I heard a man's voice. And I said, what did you hear specifically? She goes, I heard a male voice, a white guy, late 20s, early 30s, just talking as if he was talking on a telephone answering machine. Hmm. I said, okay, fine. I said, did you hear the phone ring? She goes, yeah. I goes, who was that? I goes, nobody. So I went through the entire house, and it was cold outside, so all the windows in the house were, were locked tight and shut. I walked upstairs to the telephone answering machine. I looked no messages. I then went to the telephone and looked at the caller ID for the last incoming call. Outside of the one that I had just called on myself, there hadn't been a telephone call for two and a half hours. Hmm. I went back downstairs after looking through the entire house to make sure there wasn't somebody that had gotten into the house, unbeknownst to myself. And I went up to her and she says, well, who was on the phone? What was the message about? I said, would you believe? And she goes, what? And I said, you did hear. And she goes, I heard. And I said, okay, fine. I said, there wasn't any answering machine message. There was no one that had called for the past two and a half hours. 
the telephone ring that you heard was me calling the answering machine from the other extension. There was no calls for the past two and a half hours, as I just said to you. That was the last thing I said. Did you hear the telephone ring before you heard the voice? And she goes, no. I said, that's my point. Mm-hmm. She goes, what are you trying to tell me? She started getting a little freaky. And I said, what I'm trying to tell you is the simple fact that it wasn't a telephone answering machine and a voice on it. She freaked out. She couldn't believe it. And I said, but you heard it. She goes, you're damn right I heard it. And I'm freaking out on it. A month later, I'm in bed waking up, and my bedroom sits right below the, the staircase and the living room where the ghost hunters were when they had that crash boom sound from mm-hmm. my kitchen. I was sitting in bed, and I woke up, and I looked up to the ceiling, and I thought, all right, I got to get going with the day. And the next thing I hear is footsteps. And mind you, I've got the two dogs, and they're in the bed with me, and I've got one of the cats on the bed with me, and the other cat's in another room. And I'm hearing the sound, and I have heard the sound before, of people walking when I have company staying over across the floor in the living room. And it was clearly the sounds of a, of a human being's footsteps trailing from the window and the balcony towards the kitchen. And it went, I heard one, and I'm watching the, watching the ceiling as I, say, as I point to the ceiling, and my eyes are following the sound of the footsteps trailing across towards the kitchen. And I said, one, two, three, four, five, and then it went six, and that was it. And they were clearly walking from the from the balcony across towards the kitchen. I was absolutely blown away. said, oh, my God. Now I've heard them all. I've heard the voices, and I've heard the footsteps. And now I've heard exactly what my laborer heard. How freaky is that? Oh, yeah. And I was about to say said to myself, okay, am I going to get out of bed and run upstairs? And I said to myself, hell no, I'm not going up there to see nothing because I know there's nothing there. And I said, I'll wait a little while. So I sat in bed for an hour until I got the courage up to go upstairs to the front door and look, and the door was locked and dead bolted from the inside, and there was no one in the house but me. That was enough for me to say, okay, I have now heard that sound. I've seen objects move. I've seen the ghost of Jay Sebring. I've had other people tell me their weird experiences in the house, from people who have said they felt nauseous and dizzy when they come in the house, to people who have said they've been tapped in the shoulders, to the key grip who was working on the film, who stayed in the house for 14 days during the filming two years ago, who six months after the filming was telling my PR person that he had had some weird, wild experiences when he was working on the movie, and he was still too much of a skeptic to tell anybody about it because to this day he didn't believe what he had experienced. And what I'm about to tell you is true. He was in the third-level bedroom sleeping for two weeks in that room. He said on several occasions in the wee morning hours, someone would come into the room and pull at his feet and the door was locked from the inside. On the last night he was here, he said he went to bed at 2 in the morning after we had an improvisational seance taking place here. And he says he no sooner had put his head on the pillow than this dark, sinister voice said, you're coming with us, Mm. and pulled him up out of bed towards the ceiling. And this guy is 6 foot 2, 250 pounds, and he's no slouch, and he's a South African gentleman. And he said... He screamed, he goes, put me back, don't, no, put me down, put me down. 
at which point he remembers being put back down on the bed on the opposing side of the bed, sitting upright, being very aware of his surroundings. He says he was so blown away he couldn't believe what had occurred. In that same room, we had taken with infrared video footage, which you can look up on my website, houseatthendofthedrive.com, under Real Ghosts. We have three infrared video clips that are there that show weird objects floating across the room and up towards the ceiling. One reverses direction and goes left to right and then up abruptly towards the outside of the frame. And in that room, we've had psychics spend the night. One is a friend of mine who stays there regularly and said, I heard the sounds of footsteps coming into the room where the door was locked and somebody sitting down on the edge of the bed and watching the edge of the bed depress as if somebody's bottom was sitting on it and looking up and there was nobody there. Amongst other people who have been in that same room who have described the sensation of somebody being in the bathroom with them like a voyeur watching them getting showered and getting dressed in that same room, which is where the, the laborer had his weird experience well. Well, now, uh, so the film is already done. You, you've already completed all the filming of the movie? The filming has been completed, but we're right now in post-production, mm-hmm. re-editing, re-adding new music, new sounds, redoing the final polish to it to really make it shine and be doing a lot of things that need to be done to make this thing really make it a real interesting, hopefully from my God, my, 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 the God's ears, a theatrical feature. And is there any kind of uh, planned completion date, or is it kind of just you know, still up in the air at this point? Well, I'd say before the end of the year, we should be completely finished with the polish, and we shall be trying to get this done. Within three months, we're looking at, we should, we're projecting getting it done but as I've seen in the industry you never can count on anything but what will happen when it happens in its proper time yeah that's true and that's the real thing this is really I have to say this honestly this is really my a gift from I believe from Sharon the whole idea in the story was defeated to me through Sharon's voice and through Sharon's imagery in my mind's eye about three years ago when I got bits and pieces of this story um, in my mind's eye as I was walking down the driveway trying to come up with an idea and a plan for my for the rest of my life and my career. And it was something that I saw a lot of things that I couldn't imagine. I wrote them down, and it was interesting because I was very fascinated by the murders, but I didn't want to exploit them. And to me, it was fascinating what I was picking up, so I wrote this whole story down. And it became a labor of love, and it's more of a shared gift than it is anything else, and that's why I'm very, very super respectful of the, of the victims, and I honor, it, honor them, and I venerate their, their, their lives, and I want people to remember them as real flesh and blood individuals that are not just a footnote to history, because it's not fair for them to, to be, how should I say, to be the, the, the punchline of the murders that's mm-hmm. all they are to a lot of people, and people have now have a kind of, how should I say, have made them out to be deserving of their deaths. And yeah. I've done a few radio programs where people have called in and said, oh, but don't you think because there's a possibility that Sharon and Jay were doing drugs and that's how they got in touch with Charlie Manson and stuff? And my response was, look, Manuel Noriega 
was 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 making millions of dollars on selling cocaine and stuff. These people did not need to be put to death for that, if that is the case. And it's a bad thing to make that be the case. And they now to be remembered for their accomplishments, not their demise and their untimely death. And House of the House at the End of the Drive dot com is the website. Everybody can keep up to date with all the the latest information there. Yes, as a matter of fact, they can. We're going to be updating the website shortly to really put some new things and new footage on there as well um, to get things, you know, more up to date. Because there's something, like I said, on YouTube that we've got that's a phenomenal piece of video footage that was shot here in the second floor hallway. And, and we'll make sure we um, put that up on our site so people can see it as well. Yeah, put that up on your site. The, the link on YouTube is quote-unquote test, in quotes, has to deal with some ghosts. It is phenomenal infrared video footage that is very compelling. And, I, you know, to me, it's, it, it'll blow your mind. And no, this test is my cat, who actually is the star or the second star in that video footage, where she comes out of the hall, into the hallway, and she is tracking these orbs and these moving objects and a lot of people say it's dust and a lot of people say it's um, it's bugs and my response is my cat is a hunter when she sees a bug in her midst she jumps on it pounces on it and if it's dust there's a very very I, since I, dis, I, I discount these issues of dust particles because one object travels down the 33 foot hallway and then comes back on its own cognizance stops three-quarters of the way up the hallway and then goes back and forth and through a wall, as well as the other object in the periphery in the frame where the cat is literally tracking the stuff and just, like, behaving like there's just something not right about it. All right. As far as the website, I'd say our updates will be done in about two to three weeks. You'll see more information on the site, site and you will be, and your audience will be very, very, very impressed with what we come up with on the site. All right, well, I thank, you, uh, I thank you for joining us, David, and, and sharing your story with us and, and for keeping the memory alive of the victims of the Manson family. It's more about just, you know, who did the killings. It's also about who were the victims as well. Exactly, and I want to say thank you very much for having me on your show, and I'd be very, very happy to come back at any time on your show and talk more about it since there's so much more about the, the murders and the ghosts and the hauntings. That's, like I've been saying, it's an ongoing um, investigation. Until I die and leave this earth, I will continue to talk openly and honestly and sparingly and lovingly about the victims because I don't think that people really truthfully respect them as people and more than just victims to this terrible, heinous night. All right, well, uh, we will keep up to date with everything, and we will have you back. Uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll keep making sure that uh, everybody goes to houseattheendofthedrive.com. Stay tuned for those updates, and we'll talk to you more in the future. Thank you, David. Thank you again, Tim. Have yourself a very good evening as well. You too. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Spooky South Coast. Join us next week when we'll be broadcasting live from outside the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, Massachusetts, on the anniversary of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. We'll have uh, special guests joining us throughout the course of the night, talking to us about the case. We'll touch upon the paranormal aspect of what's going on there and a whole lot more. So be sure to join us next Saturday night. But for now, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. 
Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is...